Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by a special guest today, Dr. Crawford Gribben. Uh, Dr. Gribben is a professor of history at Queen's University, Belfast in Ireland. And if you have not seen Queen's University, you need to pull this up on Google Maps. It is the most spectacularly beautiful place you've ever seen. He is an expert on the Puritans, especially John Owen, John Nelson Darby, and John Milton, and has written several books. In fact, I, I discovered him through a book that was not on the Puritans called Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, talking about resistance movements and post-millennialism in the Pacific Northwest. And maybe at some point we'll get him on the podcast to talk about that book, uh, which is just a phenomenal book. But he's also written extensively on the Puritans, The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, John Owen and English Puritanism, and the book we're discussing today, An Introduction to John Owen. So you're going to love this podcast. This is just a fascinating conversation about maybe the most formidable and well-known of the Puritans, certainly one of the most theologically astute Puritans. But as you'll hear about today, not just an intellectual a person who lived in really interesting, turbulent times, somebody who integrated their faith into politics and social life and the life of the home. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Crawford Gribben. Well, Dr. Crawford Gribben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Cole. It's just a delight to be here. Really appreciate your interest, and I'm looking forward to having a chat. So I came across your introduction to John Owen, and I just think it's the perfect intro for somebody that maybe not maybe not know anything about John Owen, or somebody like me who first came across uh, some of his more technical work. This really gives you a great picture of John Owen, and I wondered as I was reading it, how did you get introduced to John Owen, and what sparked your interest? Yeah, thanks. Um yeah, it's an interesting question because nowadays Owen is everywhere, isn't he? Everywhere in evangelical culture. Um, you can buy John Owen t-shirts, mugs, you name it. Uh, there's there's tons and tons of evangelical publishers who have updated his English and made his work much, much more accessible. Um, when I first heard about John Owen, none of that was in place. The only thing that was available really were the old Banner of Truth editions. Uh, um, or even some of the 19th century copies um, that they were based on. So um, a bit like a lot of people, I suppose I'd heard Owen's name, um, but I wasn't really very excited about reading him at all. Um, I didn't come from a church tradition where Owen was a particularly celebrated figure. Um, we didn't really have celebrated figures um, in the church community I grew up in, but Owen certainly wouldn't have been one of them. Had, had his name been known. So it really wasn't until the mid-90s, late 90s, when I was doing my PhD in Glasgow um, and writing a thesis about Puritan apocalyptic belief that mm. Owen's name came onto the radar an, an awful lot more. And, and even then, I wasn't really too keen on reading him. So it was only about maybe 2010, um, maybe only about 2010, that I thought, well, actually, I probably just need to bite the bullet here. And for various reasons, did begin to read him. And like many people, found that he was much easier to read than I'd realized. And actually that, um, you know, the, the, the sort of benefits, the, the personal benefits of reading him were so, were so good that I, I wanted to share this with other people as well. And so the little book that you mentioned, Introduction to John Owen, published by Crossway a couple of years ago, it was just my attempt to invite other people to have the same kind of experience I had and to realize that, Owen doesn't really deserve his reputation as being formidable, 
difficult, complicated. Of course, there are some of his books that are formidable, difficult, and complicated. But you don't read those ones first. You don't even read them second. <laughs> you, know, you, you start with the easy stuff and the most helpful stuff. And there's tons of that. So you can read tons of Owen before you need to get to something that is really, really difficult. So that's really the background to the book. Well, I love that you correct some of that narrative in the book, because that is certainly his reputation is difficult to read, maybe the most erudite and technically uh, written of the Puritans. But you you open the book and give Owen his due. Uh, In the preface, you write, John Owen was the greatest and certainly the most formidable of English Protestant theologians. I think reading that book, you can even tell that this is true. He lived an amazing life. And to understand him, you have to understand a little bit about when he lived and what his background was. Uh, When I was preparing for this conversation this week, I couldn't help but think of the coronation of King Charles III, thinking of Charles I and Charles II, maybe the most tumultuous season of uh, life in the UK. Um, Give us a snapshot of Owen's world, what he lived through, the forces that shaped him and, and the things he experienced. Well, yeah, you, you have a wonderful gift of understatement there, Cole. I mean, he, he lives through one of the most um, revolutionary centuries, doesn't he? He's born in 1616, dies in 1683 or thereabouts. Um, he grows up in the reign of um, James. So he grows up about 15 years, no, about, about 12 years after England and Scotland have come under a single king. And that, while it might you might think that doesn't really affect everyday life, that has a huge impact on people in England, especially in terms of religion. So he grows up in this sort of marginal religious community, sometimes known as the Puritans. Uh, his dad is a minister in the Church of England. He's not a nonconformist. Uh, he's happy to stay in the Church of England when much more radical people have already left, either to go to uh, North America or to go to the Netherlands, uh, to the Low Countries. So Owen grows up in this sort of Anglican household that's unhappy but not unhappy enough to do anything serious about that unhappiness. Mm. And then as he grows, he, he goes to study at Oxford in his teens, uh, along with his brother. Um, he has a very unexpected conversion experience uh, a bit later on uh, in, in his life, and it takes him by surprise. Um, but it's a really has a really dramatic effect in his life because he begins to realize that the doctrinal debates that are being argued about in college actually have very real spiritual consequences. And so in his 20s, he really commits himself to this reformed theology that's under attack at Oxford. So he he joins the losing side. He joins the side that's losing in the institution. And in fact, he actually has to leave Oxford. He has to give up his, his dream of being an academic because he can't really fit in with the new religious environment on campus. So he leaves the college, leaves the university, um, makes his way to become like a, a private chaplain t- to a very rich family. Um, that also seems to fail because um, he joins that family just as civil war begins to break out between supporters of King and the supporters of Parliament. Uh, the family he lives with are very much on the side of the King. Owen, however, has become much more strongly aware of his own situation, of the, the big political issues, and he nails his colours to the, the side of Parliament. Um, so he has to leave. and. Uh, you know, he, he he just really struggles to know what to do and he enters this period of depression. Um, the Civil War continues. It leads to a revolution. Um, through this period, Owen is becoming a, a minister uh, in, in various parishes, uh, we would say in, in Essex in the south uh, southwest, southeast of England. And um, 
you know, he's, he's gaining some pastoral experience. He's preaching to huge crowds, 2,000 people, but they're not there because he's a brilliant preacher. They're there because they have to attend by law. So, you know, he's preaching away, but he's not really seeing any success for his labors. But he is uh, making friends with important people, and those important people catapult him to the top of the tree, you might say, ecclesiastically. Because when the when the Civil War ends and Charles I is put on trial, um, the MPs want someone to come and preach the day after his execution. And Owen is one of the two people that they invite to do that. So that means that Owen is really in tight with the new Republican regime led by Oliver Cromwell uh, and his comrades. Um, through the 1650s, that 11-year republic offers Owen unimaginable opportunities. He takes place, he, take, he takes part in a couple of invasions. Oliver Cromwell's army invades Ireland, hugely controversial even to the present day. The population of Ireland declines by about one third during that invasion. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly bloody. Then, and one year later, Owen accompanies Cromwell on his invasion of Scotland, much less bloody, but equally successful. Um, and then Owen gets a chance to become the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University, the highest academic position uh, in the institution. And that's pretty much how he spends the 11 years of, of the Republic. But it comes to a crushing and bruising end when the Republic um, collapses inward. It doesn't collapse because of outward pressure. It collapses because of its own internal weakness. And the Royalists seize the opportunity. Charles II comes back. And that begins the second phase of Owen's life where he's again back on the margins, back on the edge of the law, um, pastoring tiny congregations, um, sometimes being arrested. His house gets searched for weapons. Believe it or not, they find weapons there. People mm. he's associated with are involved in political conspiracies, even attempts to take the king's life. Uh, and th through this period, you can really see Owen ramping up his sense of the danger that nonconformists face, not just politically, but even theologically, because one of the really telling things that happens during this period is that the nonconformist churches, what we would have once called the Puritan churches, really begin to slip away from orthodoxy. And so Owen ends his life worrying about the state of the nation under Charles II um, and worrying even more, I think, about the state of the, the nonconformist churches, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists and the Baptists which he fears have given up or are giving up on some of the most important biblical doctrines. Hmm. Well, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who saw more upheaval. I think that whole reformation into revolutionary period, uh, the, the politics and theology were so intertwined for people like John Owen. Um, if you think about his opportunity to travel with and preach alongside Oliver Cromwell, and then to go back under the reign of Charles II, it's just, it's hard for us now to wrap our minds around what he was living through. Um, I was really intrigued in the book. The way you organized this book was looking at John Owen's theology through different seasons of life. And certainly, as you've just mentioned for us, there, there were a lot of tumultuous seasons of life. Uh, whereas you do have a full biography, more of a, a theological biography of Owen that I mentioned, John Owen and English Puritanism. This one, I think you say in the intro, is more biographical theology. And I, I was very intrigued why you decided to write the book that way. Yeah, again, it's a good question, Cole. There wasn't any kind of light bulb moment where I thought that would be um, a, a very effective thing. I think actually I was mostly interested in talking about his views on death and how mm -hmm. Christians should prepare for death. 
and then thought about, well, also, you know, he, Owen goes through a midlife crisis. You know, he gets to his late 40s. And in his late 40s, his glittering career and his, you know, his great public prominence just comes to a crushing defeat when the king comes back and he's, you know, he's essentially a, a marginal figure on the very edge, edge of the law. So I suppose wanting to write about his views on death and preparing for heaven, wanting also to think about how do you cope with a midlife crisis? When you get to my age, that's a very pressing question. Mm. Um, but then I, I suppose it led naturally to think about his views on childhood um, and his views on youth. His views on childhood, I was interested in because there's a publication what, what, that, um, that Owen produced um, in 1650, I think, um, called The Primer, or as Americans say, The Primer. Uh, but, but we say properly, The Primer. Uh, but but, but the, the Primer was a little book that, that Owen prepared for children. And it's a book full of prayers, prayers that you can teach a, ch a child to say in the morning, at night, before meals, after meals, as they read the Bible. It also had some passages printed out that children should memorize key biblical chapters. Um, and uh, I just I was so enchanted by this. I wanted to write about his view of childhood. What does it mean to be a Christian child or to be a child in a Christian home? Um, Owen famously is absolutely opposed to written prayers, except when it comes to teaching children how to pray. So I was really quite quite enchanted by that. And I suppose those building blocks then just became the foundations of, of that book that you mentioned. Well, I was fascinated by the, the primer, as, as we should say. Uh, good, and, good. You're catching on, Cole. Excellent. <laughs> and why it's not among his uh, popular books. I, I, you know, some of the reputation of the Puritans now is for their family worship. And that it seems right. to fit perfectly. But I'd never heard of it until I read your book. Yeah, I, I mean, it just it just disappeared. So, you know, I'd, I suppose like lots of people, I'd read lots of books about John Owen in which the primer had never been mentioned. And I found it, I found a reference to it, a stray reference to it in a a, a, a book about, believe it or not, early children's writing. Huh. And the, the author of this book in children's literature was making the point that John Owen was one of the earliest children's authors. And again, you know, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, whenever we talk about Owen, it's Owen the brainiac, as I saw him mm -hmm. recently described. You know, o o Owen the big brain, the egghead of the English Puritan movement. <laughs> but but here was someone else describing him as one of England's first children's authors. Uh, you know, it's really delightful. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, it's wonderful to think that someone who knew as much uh, in such depth as Owen did was also prepared to sit and write prayers that little children could learn to say, to come to understand that God was their father, that Jesus was their savior, and the Holy Spirit was the promise of heaven for them. Yeah, I love that you included a few of those prayers at the, in an appendix at the end of this book, and they're really touching when you read them, especially, as you point out, he was not a fan of uh, written prayers. He thought most of worship should be extemporaneous. And then you get these really touching, intimate prayers to teach children. Yeah, and I suppose what makes it so touching is that he had lost a couple of his children as he sat down to write those prayers. So in, in the years preceding, um, I think, in fact, all, all of the first group of children that he had had died by that point. Um, you know, there's, there was a lot of disease in that period. Um, the late 1640s were a period of very bad harvests, and bad harvests led to very bad health. Um, and, it, you know, it's sad to think, or it's striking to think, 
hear his own, a father who has buried his children, now sitting down to write a book about how to teach children to come to know Christ. Yeah, that, that part was really moving in the book. You point out that at the end, by the end of his life, he'll bury all of his children and his first wife. Yeah. His life was shaped, even beyond just his home life, his life was shaped by immense tragedy. What role do you think that played in his thinking? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question, Cole. Um, I, think, I think there's no doubt that he is a much, much more human person um, than often we've taken him for. So, you know, we have this impression of Owen, as I said before, the theological egghead, um, you know, an incredibly intelligent man. There's no doubt that's, that's what he was. Um, we also celebrate him as being a really formidable theologian, a very accurate and very helpful theologian, and he certainly was too. Um, but he is fundamentally a human being. And I think that maybe maybe one of the things that we haven't done as well as we should have done is to remember that the great heroes of historical theology are living and breathing human beings who you know have their good days and their bad days, have their ups and downs, have their tragedies and their delights. And one of the things I wanted to do in, in, to do in the book was just to call attention to Owen's humanity mm-hmm. and to, to try to remind us that his life experience shaped the way that he thought about everything just as much as our life experience does the same to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Owen lives through enormous sorrow. Um, as you say, he buried all of his children, buried his first wife, um, on top of that, he buried all the hopes he had for his country. Mm. Because when he was dying, everything he worked for seemed to have been lost. So Owen is, Owen is a great example of us, a great example really of faith, I think. Because faith, um, you know, in, in Scripture in the New Testament, faith is not something that flourishes only when the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and everything is happy. You know, faith is something that's fashioned in the furnace. Faith is the experience of that fourth man, you know, in in the fiery furnace. And I think that's what Owen understands and knows. So when he writes his book about communion with God, for example, he's writing that as someone who has buried children, who's, you know, who's tasted grief. He's writing that as someone who's taken part in an invasion that's led to the decimation in fact, the collapse of the Irish population by around one third. You know, he has he has lived he has lived through incredibly brutal, as well as personally tragic circumstances, and that that must add something to the way he thinks about the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure anyone has really been able to discover what I certainly haven't. Um, but really, all I wanted to do in that book was just to call attention to his humanity, to those griefs, to those sorrows. Um, if nothing else, they made him long for heaven. Why, mm-hmm. why wouldn't they? Right. Well, in two of the, I, I believe these both are later works of his, Communion with God and the Glory of Christ, you see some of the yeah. tenderness in his own relationship, his own longing with Christ. The, one of the themes that runs through your yeah. book is that Owen viewed life as an experience of grace from birth to death and far beyond in a continually deepening spiritual life. That you show how that yeah. pervades all of his life and all of his works, and especially as he looks at each season of life, those seasons of yeah. sorrow and that longing to be with Christ at the end of his life, especially, 
is a continuation of that theme. He approaches it theologically. He approaches it pastorally. He approaches it as a husband, as as a father. That really captures the heart of who he is. And it brings him into, like you said, it kind of brings him into three-dimensional, flesh-on-the-bones kind of life. Yeah, I think one of the things about Owen that, that I've really appreciated is when you read books like that, which are both in the Banner of Truth paperbacks series, they're very accessible, very approachable. Um, when you read books like that, you see the way he thinks theology should play out in everyday life, that this isn't something that's just done in the academy or just among academics. It's something, and I think this, this is maybe the truest legacy of the Puritans, it should be practical. It should hit the affections and the emotions. These were not just stoic uh, philosopher theologians. They really saw a practical application in their life. How do you see that playing out in Owen's life? Yeah, I I think that's true. Um, I mean, for for Owen, it plays out, um, I suppose, most obviously in his thinking about the church. Um, And secondarily, maybe in his thinking about everyday life. So Owen, Owen is a theologian of the church. He writes a lot about very practical day-to-day issues. How should you worship? How should you organize a church service? What kinds of things are legitimate or illegitimate in worshiping God? How should a church be structured? How often should you have the Lord's table? You know, all, all of those kinds of issues. Um, so, you know, he, he, he really roots his desire to be with Christ in the ordinances that Christ has given him. And, um, and, and so when he thinks about the church, he just doesn't, he doesn't think about it abstractly. Um, he thinks about the experience of going to church as an experience of meeting with God, but fundamentally receiving grace from the Savior through the ordinances, through, you know, through preaching, through the Lord's Supper, in baptism, in fellowship, prayer, uh, and so on. But he's also a theologian of everyday life. And again, I think this maybe is something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to as we read Owen but when when he writes his political writings which again haven't really been much talked about in theological circles but when he writes his political writings um, which are books or pamphlets really about toleration he's also imagining what it's like to be let's say for example a merchant who goes to one of the churches that he has spent so much time describing but finds as a consequences finds as a consequence that, they, that, that this commitment to what we might call Puritan religion actually um, causes real problems in everyday life. So, you know, in the 1660s, 1670s, anyone caught, anyone caught attending an illegal religious meeting would be fined, and their fine would be a certain amount of money, but that fine would be given to the person who discovered them. So basically mm. what that law encouraged was spying on a massive scale. People would would follow, you know, follow their neighbors, find out where they were going at a certain time of the night. Um, and one of the things that meant was that Owen's church couldn't meet at regular hours. So if you look through Owen's sermons, they preaches to his little church in volume eight, volume nine of the Banner of Truth edition. One of the things you see, if you plot the dates, um, it's even clearer in the unpublished sermons. If you plot the dates, you'll see that Owen's congregation meets on completely random days of the week. There's mm. no pattern to it. So they're, they're actively trying to retain their privacy and security by making things as complicated as possible for people who would spy on them. So Owen writes about this, you know, and, and he writes about how 
um, difficult. This makes life for believers who might be merchants, who might have quite a lot to lose in identifying with one of these small, marginal religious congregations. But he also writes about it in terms of natural justice. It's not fair. It's not just to set people against people and to give them an economic reason to betray their friends or their relatives. So, you know, there's there's all kinds of things he writes about, but but those are, I suppose, two key things. What does it mean to be part of the church? And what does it mean then to be part of one of those churches and to live in a society um, in which you're kind of underground? I didn't realize some of the political legacy that Owen has in terms of the Western liberal tradition. You remark in the book that uh, John Locke is heavily influenced by him. And of course, when we think of the liberal tradition, we think of John Locke. Should we should we think of John Owen instead, or should he be mentioned in that same conversation? Well, it's an interesting question. There's a big debate about um, the link between Owen and Locke. Um, Locke was certainly a student at Christ Church when Owen was in charge of Christ Church in the 1650s at Oxford. In fact, Owen was the first person, we think, ever to publish Locke. Uh, hmm. John Locke published a little poem in a book of poems that, that our John Owen wrote the first item for uh, and seems to have sponsored through to publication. So there, there's a relationship between them. Um, in some of Locke's letters, he makes jokes about a preacher at college who's always talking about the sea and he's always using nautical imagery in his sermons. Um, this, I think, is a nod to Owen because Owen only ever had two sea journeys, going to Ireland and coming back from Ireland but they must have been so horrific and panic-stricken <laughs> that he never forgets the experience of being in a boat. And if you read his sermons or his later books, he's constantly talking about pilots bringing the ship to shore or you know what it's like to be out at sea in a storm. Um, and, and Locke picks up on this, I think, a little bit humorously, um, almost as if Owen can never get over his experience of seasickness. Um, anyway, what, what's the bigger intellectual relationship between them? I think the jury's still out a little bit in that one. Um, can we say that Owen is the founder of the tradition that becomes classical liberalism? Probably not. It's maybe too big a, a claim to make. Um, Locke is often seen as a really seminal voice in that discussion, isn't he? Mm -hmm. But I think we can say that Locke eventually picks up, you know, Locke himself goes through a bit of a political transformation, but eventually he picks up on the ideas of toleration that Owen had described um, 20 years before Locke does. So Owen is certainly someone who should be part of this tradition. I should say, though, uh, Cole, that after I wrote the book, I did a bit more reading on Owen's views in politics. Hmm. And it seems it seems that um, come the later 1670s, early 1680s, he's hanging out with people who are prepared to be involved in insurrection or sedition. Mm -hmm. um, we know in the early part of this period, his house gets searched and... Uh, weapons are discovered, a couple of cases of pistols. But by the end of this period, the later 1670s, 1680s, um, his brother and his former pastoral assistant, a man called Robert Ferguson, are both involved in an attempt to kill the king and the king's brother. Wow. Um, Owen was arrested and questioned for being involved in that conspiracy too. He denied being involved in the conspiracy, but he was named as a conspirator by James, the Duke of Monmouth, who who um, who would then, two years after Owen's death, lead an insurrection of his own. So mm. was Owen involved in that? He says he wasn't. We've got to take him at his word. 
but certainly a lot of his, a lot of the younger people in the church were involved in that conspiracy. His brother was involved in the conspiracy. His pastoral assistant, recently retired pastoral assistant, was involved in the conspiracy. And so while we might like to celebrate Owen as a kind of paragon of classical liberalism, which I think there is validity in doing, we also need to balance that perhaps with some newer research that says that he, or at least the people around him, um, were considering much more radical action at the end of his life. Remember, mm. I mean, it sounds it sounds astonishing, but remember, it's not really because this period, the later 1670s and 80s, is also the period when the Scottish Covenanters take up arms to defend their freedom to worship. Right. So this is a period in which this is a very common um, thing to do. This is normal in those uh, radical Calvinist circles. Um, finally, the state pushes them so far that they think the only reasonable thing they can do now is to perhaps take up some form of physical resistance to the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would be very intrigued, and I hope people are working on this convergence between Owen's theology and his faith and the political scene that he found himself in. As These conversations are happening in America today, certainly across Western Europe as well. Yeah. Uh, I think we would be well served looking at the good and the bad from people like Owen and uh, just totally different circumstances in which Christians found themselves having these same conversations. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his legacy, uh, I was interested to see the line of people who have found Owen to be so helpful. John Wesley early on uh, publishing or uh, sending out a lot of his books, obviously Martin Lloyd-Jones, Banner of Truth. You've written on him. Crossway is now republishing his works, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm wondering if maybe John Owen's best days are ahead in terms of his popularity. What, what do you think uh, has been his enduring appeal, and, and what do you see for the future of John Owen's interest? Well, his, his appeal is certainly growing. He's got more readers now than ever before. Banner of Truth obviously have to be credited with creating that, that demand, um, other publishers, Crossway, Christian Focus, um, worked for a long time to produce simplified or modernized editions of Owen's key works. And I'm sure that's really helped as well. Um, having Owen, uh, having Owen's work now republished by Crossway, uh, all of his work republished by Crossway, or at least all of his published work republished by Crossway in modernized English, I think has the potential to be a real breakthrough because the, it will do away with the, you know, the common concern that Owen's just too complicated. Those crossway mm -hmm. editions, I've only seen the first one, but those crossway editions come with very nicely written introductions to help you steer your way into the book. Um, they, they, they often summarize the book or explain what the book's about. So you're not reading cold. And I think up till this point, people using the Banner of Truth edition have had to do a lot of work on their own trying to figure out you know, what, what, what the books are about and so forth. Um, so I think those, those um, that project, the Crossway project, is, is really, really important and has got huge potential. Um, I would say, just in case any listeners are interested as well, John Tweeddale, uh, who works at Reformation Bible College down in Florida, and I um, published or edited a book that came out last year called The TNT Clark Handbook of John Owen. Um, it's really thick. It's about a quarter of a million words long. Um, <laughs> and it's got chapters on lots of major themes in Owen, not just devotional themes, not just theological themes, but things like education. What do you think of education? Mm. What do you think about science? Um, but the book also has 
introductions to his key works. And we have people like Joel Beakey, um, Ryan McGraw, um, I mean, a host of people who have spent a long time reading Owen, distilling their knowledge in relatively short chapters. So if someone is wanting to start reading Owen in a very serious way, um, that book, which will be published in paperback later on this year, around about $30, um, I think will, will represent really, really good value um, in reading Owen along with people you know, like Joel Beakey, for example, who really have spent a lifetime studying his significance. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to that and uh, a compilation volume like that among these Owen scholars can be really valuable. And uh, having the paperback a little cheaper is also going to be really valuable. for Yeah, the, the hardback is about $100 more expensive, <laughs> uh, but the paperback yeah. is roughly about $30, I think. I think it's coming out in the autumn, but I'm excited about oh, that'll be about fantastic. That. Yeah. So if you were going to make recommendations for people wanting to read Owen uh, himself, what, what books do you recommend? Well, I think, I think I'd only really recommend one uh, generally, and, and that is his book, uh, Communion with God. It's, I'd recommend it because I think it, it shows you the very heart of Owen's theology, um, but it also shows that theology is not some kind of academic game. It's not like philosophy. For, for Owen, in communion with God, theology is about knowing who God is. It's a groundbreaking book because you know he, he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their relationship to the believer individually. He talks about how we can have communion with each of those persons of the Trinity individually, what it means to have communion with the Father, how that's different from communion with the Son, and how mm -hmm. communion with the Spirit is different again. And he does a really good job um, of, of explaining that. I only have one qualification, Cole, if I'm allowed to qualify Owen. Um, he, he argues that we should directly address the Spirit in our worship. Mm. And Owen is a brilliant exegete. But it's very striking that when he comes to make that claim, he can't really find much biblical evidence for it. So I'll just leave that point hanging out there um, and, and readers can make of it um, what they wish. But I think that book is just is brilliant. It's warm. It's devotional. But it's also mm -hmm. really instructive. And if, if people who are listening maybe haven't thought a whole lot about the Trinity and about how the, the doctrine of the Trinity can become an experience of the Trinity... Um, Owen's book is just a really great um, guide in how that can happen. Any chance or any any way you know of that the primer is going to be republished? I don't, but I mean, if anyone wants to get a copy of it, I'm happy to send them, you know, a, a PDF of my copy. It's it's a lovely little book, but I think the problem with it, Cole, is that it's so small mm -hmm. that a publisher would struggle to to sell it as an item. You know, it's, yeah. it's it really is just about five or six prayers. Um, an ABC, a copy of the alphabet, uh -huh. uh, and then a number, a number of Bible passages that you can memorize with your children. I mean, it's it really is as simple as that. Right. It would take about ten pages. So yeah. I, I don't know if, um, you know, if, if you're looking for a new project, but but in your spare time, <laughs> that might be a really good thing to do. Well, I have no sway uh, to say this and no connections, but I, I think Crossway should put it in the short classics series, and I think you should do the intro for it. So there's a, there's a project in your spare time. Well, maybe we could do it together then. <laughs> well, Dr. Crawford-Gruben, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk. I hope that many people come to know uh, John Owen's work and your work about him and benefit from him as I have and from your writing on him. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Cole. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.